0: If you have your Bibles turn to first John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. We're gonna be reading verses 12 through 17. First John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The title of the sermon this morning is Undivided Love. Undivided Love. One of the things that you would dare say that we would have a struggle with as believers, those of us that have walked with God for any amount of time, is that we have a struggle being loyal to him. We have a struggle to not let our affections be torn between following him and other things. If we were to be honest, our love many times feels divided. We try, in one sense, on Sundays to be the good Christians that we ought to be in, being in church. And then during the week, we kind of fall into a relapse, if you will, only to come back many times on Sunday and go, Lord, speak to me again. Folks, God wants from us an undivided love. He wants from us a passionate heart that beats for him entirely. And that is only possible if we take the word of God seriously. I would argue that as seriously as you take Bible reading and Bible study is how seriously you take your relationship with God. If you take it as optional, it doesn't matter much. Your walk with God is suffering, and you need to be honest about that. There's no other way to walk closely to God than abiding in him, abiding in the vine. And that abiding comes when you and I take the Word of God at face value, rather than taking our opinions and picking and choosing what we like in the Bible. You see, the truth is, many of us, we take the Bible for therapeutic reasons. And God wants more than that from us. Yes, the Word of God can be a comfort, can be a strengthening, can be an encouragement, The word of God is literally the very breath breathed out from God to you and me, the very life that we need. The next breath that we draw physically should remind us of the fact that God is the one that speaks to us spiritually. You see, this morning we're going to be looking at two things here in this text. Number one, the spiritual challenges, verses 12 through 14, and number two, the serious contrast, verses 15 through 17. Number one, spiritual challenges, verses 12 through 14. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So what is John driving at here? He seems to kind of repeat a few phrases here. The issue specifically, probably, as we start unpacking this text, is what is the precise identity of each group here? The views can be as followed, physical ages, children, young men, older men. Or it could be what seems to be the case here, levels of spiritual maturity. But little children is used several times throughout the book, telling us that John is speaking to the whole audience. And this address, though, would be addressing all, when he uses the phrase little children. He then subdivides into fathers, young men, and apparently even further between children. As one commentator states, John uses different words for little children in verses 12 and 13. Technia and respectfully, respectively. Technia has more of an emphasis on a child's relationship of dependence on a parent, while Padea has more of an emphasis on a child's immaturity and need for instruction. Each age group has a quality that is characteristic of the entire group of believers. So why are these verses included, if you will, in this epistle? Because fellowship is for all believers, whether you're mature or not. Whether you have progressed in your sanctification where you ought to be, or whether you're lagging behind. He's not dissatisfied with them. The author here, John, is not dissatisfied with the audience he's writing to. He's trying to encourage them as a pastor, if you will. That if you've been lagging behind, if you're faltering in your walk with God, get back up. Get back on track. Their position in Christ is a necessary reminder. In fact, the greatest need of many Christians is to understand their position in Christ. You see, the reason is many struggle with their self-worth because they have an identity crisis. They don't know who they are. They don't know whose they are. This is vital for all of us as believers. You see, if you understand your identity in Christ, then a lot of those things will flow out of that. The walk with God will flow out of your identity with him. You see, this comes in many different experiences for believers. Some are beaten down by sin and don't feel that they can ever be good enough, living in perpetual sadness and spiritual depression. That could be you this morning. There are others that abuse the grace of God constantly, looking for whatever they can get away with, knowing they are all set all the while not realizing that trying to pretend sin isn't there doesn't make it go away. You and I have probably met people like this. Oh, God's fine with that. I believe. Abusing the very grace that set them free. And some are well balanced in understanding that they sin and that they will fall, but they get back up and fight another day. That's the goal for all of us as believers. The goal for all of us as believers is to realize that we, on this side of eternity, are never going to reach perfection, but we strive for it with all of our might. And when we fall, we get back up. We don't sulk in self-pity and feel like, man, it's over, I can't do anything. We go back to the Father and plead for forgiveness and get back up and fight the good fight of faith. These people don't wallow in self-pity but rather find it of utmost importance to confess and get back to those spiritual disciplines that they were lacking. You see Romans 6 is a text that the last group understands. They understand it very well. That they should continually walk close to Christ and their identity is only ever found in him. Their identity is not found in what they do for a living. Where do they go to church? Where do they go to school? Their identity is found in him. And in Romans 6 verses 1 through 4, this is a text all of us as believers need to understand clearly that Paul's communicating. The Apostle Paul writes this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. This isn't just some cute verse passage that we quote for baptism. This is a renewal every day reminding ourselves that we don't have the obligation to sin. You don't need to sin. You want to, you desire to, and you will, but you don't need to. You don't owe sin anything. You owe Christ everything. Back in 1 John, we find these truths as John breaks apart the groups. He's writing specifically to two groups, and then he pulls in the little children as well. Fathers and young men... He starts off with the standard little children with the standard qualifier because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Sins are forgiven. Verse 12. Believer, you can't live the Christian life successfully until your past has been settled and you realize that it is. Christians that can't get over the fact that God forgave their sin will constantly struggle. and I'm going to pause for a moment to make a statement that some of you will understand better than others I think those of us that grew up in the church and God kept us from a lot of things we don't understand this sometimes to the gravity of those that have been walking in the world and God saved them later on in life there's a real darkness that God rescued us from there's a real travesty that many of us neglect to see You see, the truth is, many of us have committed sins that if we were to publicly ever admit to them, we would wonder why we were ever able to go to heaven at all. And I'm not talking the standard, I've lied. I hated somebody. I'm talking dark stuff that nobody wants to know or would ever want anyone else to know. You see, here's the thing with a lot of us as Christians. We look at the world and we're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they do that. Do we pause and go, what did I do in my past? And I want want to pause for a moment here and make a statement because this is so important. A lot of us have terrible things in our past. Like not just a little off. It's outright horrid. And if you are in Christ, those things are forgiven. Don't let them destroy your joy. Don't let those things that you committed as a teenager when you walked away from God destroy what you're doing as an adult. Don't let what someone else did to you destroy what God wants to work on in your life now. Those things could have been absolutely atrocious and vile and painful, and I'm not minimizing any of that. But many times we hurt our progress in sanctification by saying, no, I can't, I don't feel forgiven. Maybe if I just do a little more, I'll feel a little better. And you do that little bit, and it doesn't help because you're viewing it the wrong way. This is an area that we need to have settled once and for all. If you are in Christ, you've been forgiven. You need to know that. And it has to affect your heart and your emotion, not just your mind. Because a lot of us know it up here. But in practical experience, we don't live that way. We live out of guilt. And a lot of churches literally have their people live out of guilt when God has said, forgiven. And what's unfortunate is churches on the other side of the spectrum, in areas that they should be ashamed, they act like it's fine. Believer, you need to know what God says about sin, and you also need to know what he says about forgiveness. Until you realize that it's more than a simple mental recollection of truth, and it sinks into your heart and affects your emotion and will, your feelings will constantly betray you. If you've walked for any length of time with God, you know that some days you don't feel like you really know God. Because you can't believe the stuff you do. You ever done that? I can't believe I did this, God. Or even worse, I did it again. I said I wasn't going to do it, and I did it again. You won't feel saved. You won't feel forgiven. You will condemn not just yourself, but others as well if you go off of your emotions, which is one of the reasons why people that are under conviction for certain sin that God ultimately has already forgiven go around condemning others for that same sin because they need others to feel as guilty as they do, even though Christ has forgiven them as well. Listen, I'm going to make a statement here. You don't get the right, I don't have the right to hold someone's past against them if Christ has forgiven them for it. God knows the darkness in my own heart. The things that I've committed against him. doesn't mean I don't get to preach on the fact that sin is still sin. Don't get me wrong on that. But what Christ has already forgiven, you and I have no right to condemn. There's a reason why it's important to not let yourself speak, but let God's word speak and repeat that to yourself. You ever have that happen? This condemning thought in your mind just really cripples you? And then you read 1 John 1 9. If I for confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me. Undeserved grace, brothers and sisters. Undeserved. Not a single one of us can do anything to deserve that. But if you can't take God at his word, then you're going to struggle. Jesus tells us just as the woman caught in adultery that he does not condemn us, but out of forgiveness to go and sin no more. It isn't as though God says, I've forgiven you, go ahead and keep doing it. He says, I've forgiven you, now, go and don't sin. Live in victory. So many of us go and sin without remorse, not remembering what that forgiveness truly cost. Sin is still sin. God never changes the standard. But the penalty for eternity is paid by the eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an apparent specific group that John seeks to address when he says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. You see, with spiritual maturity comes an experiential knowledge of who God is. Those that are mature in the faith, and there's a difference between being mature in the faith or being a believer for a while. There are many people that are believers for a while and are still very immature. You can be walking with God for many years and still be very spiritually immature. There are many Christians walking around like that. It's a person that's let their knowledge of God grow on a personal level. They detect when something's off in their walk and in others. And they detect it with a balance of what God's word says about it. They have a deeper relationship with the Father than someone who's just gotten to know him at first. Believer, you should know who God is a whole lot better years down the road than when you first met him. Knowing essentially here is an intimacy that's been built over time. You'll never know someone until you spend time with them. Why do I stress Bible reading as much as I do? Because I believe not a single one of us in here can know God on a personal level until we ask Him to speak to us. And any of us that conjure up, I know what God told me, without opening the Bible, are making up stuff. And don't ever do the foolish thing that all of us have done a time or two, or maybe dozens, right? God, I need something from you. Else, you'll find really weird texts that you're going to start applying and you don't want to apply. You see, the truth is the young men that are addressed seem to be those that are not yet fathers, serving, if you will, and engaged in the battle. Fathers in the home ought to be the most spiritually mature. But unfortunately, women in churches are more interested in Bible studies, going to church, spending time in fellowship with the saints than men are. Women care more to sing in church than men do. Well, I don't have a good voice. That's not the point. As one of our church members says, I'm just trying to make a joyful noise to the Lord, Right? Fathers, it should be your goal to help your children mature in their faith. Stop pawning it off on the church, the school, society. It's your responsibility. My responsibility. Men are to lead. And if you haven't taken it back in humility, exemplify that by clinging to what God would desire in your life. Don't demand respect. Show it in the way that you live. Anybody that has to go, you need to respect me, probably doesn't communicate well the reason that they should be respected. If you're a single mom, maybe you're watching this online, can I encourage you to seek out older women in the church that are more mature in the faith? God does not leave us helpless. There is help available to anyone that should need it. At times, it may be beyond your ability to deal with a situation. Seek someone else out to offer you wise counsel. And here's the big piece of advice that I think a lot of people are missing sometimes. Don't just find somebody that's going to agree with you. It's very easy to do that. I'm just going to ask that person. They're going to tell me that I'm right in the wrong decision I'm making. Isn't that great? Like, unfaithful Christians asking another unfaithful Christian how to live for the Lord is a horrible idea. I haven't gone to church in months. Yeah, me neither. We're great. Let me encourage you to keep backsliding. What a wonderful concept. Believer, when you are down in the depths of despair and depression and hurt and anxiety, go to the person that God has already rescued, that, rescued them from in that area. Go talk to a brother or sister that's faithfully living it out. And brother or sister, those that come to you that are hurting, that are broken, be gentle. Be caring. Take proper care of a person like that. Don't be like, can't believe you don't see this. It's not the right response. At times it may be beyond your ability to deal with the situation. Look to others for answers. Look to God's word for the answer. Learn from others and what God has done in their lives. The young men here in this text overcome or are victorious over the wicked one. They must have waged war with the devil spiritually and overcame In Ephesians 2, Satan rules over two things. He's the prince of the power of the air, the external environment of the sinner. He also controls the unbeliever internally, the spirit in man. He worketh in the children of disobedience. As my professor, Dr. Hunger, used to say, there are essentially three ways the devil works. Number one, he's a liar and deceiver. John has repeatedly mentioned lying throughout this book. Satan constantly lies to us about who we are, who God is, what's wrong, what's right, and Christians buy into the devil's lies because they go off of their feelings, experiences, and intellect over God's clearly revealed standard of his word. You want to be kept from the lies of Satan? You need to be familiar with this book. In its context, another way that the devil works is he causes us not to think. The unregenerate cannot think clearly about spiritual things. In fact, it's so foolish to him. It's like ridiculous. Why would I even want to hear this? This whole thing about God and salvation, why would I even want to talk about that? Seems foolish. Seems like those people are ignorant. I'm doing just fine. Don't tell me I'm spiritually dead. What's even more shocking is that believers have turned off their own minds to the things of God. And Satan has as much sway as he does in the church today. I know of pastors right now that have had big platforms for many years, I actually read their books years past, and they've warmed up to a lot of things that are sinful simply because of people they know. Believer, if your definition of sin is based on someone else's struggle, you're not getting the right standard. You're going to excuse so many things in the Bible simply because you know someone that struggles with that. The things that should be clear as day in the church are questioned because someone's feelings were hurt. How dare you say that's wrong? Have you read the Bible? I have God calling me out all the time. I don't know about you. God's telling me many times where I'm wrong. And let me tell you, personally, my feelings are hurt many times as well. I'm not unemotional when God calls me out. Another way that Satan works is he promotes false religion. It looks close to the truth, but it's not. The Bible links false religion with Satan worship. False religion is the equivalent to occultism. This is how he deceives people into worshiping him indirectly because most won't worship him directly. Did you know that many are completely entrenched in worshiping the prince of the power of the air and don't realize they're doing it? He's that good at deceiving people. Well, I'm not, you know, there's not this you know, statue with a guy and a goat that I'm bowing to, so I'm not worshiping Satan. Oh, but you are. You just don't realize it. That's what a lot of people in the world are. Psalm 106, 35 through 39, listen to what it says. This is the warning of what Israel did. But they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds." If the things that we practice are what the world practices, we've joined a false religion. A heavy emphasis that Satan uses is on religious experience. That's why a lot of the stuff today that's coming out, even hitting Christian circles, is I'm not religious, I'm spiritual bogus. You are religious, you just don't want to admit it. And you've been conned by statements like that. The truth is there's a channeling or a crossing over that happens with many. Demons can even mimic the deceased, hence what you call the Ouija boards. People have allowed all sorts of things into their homes and they don't realize that there's a demonic source that they come from. Just because a person has a personal experience that they believe is of God does not make it so automatically. Anybody that says, I experience God or I'm walking with God while they blatantly walk in darkness cannot say that statement truthfully. If Satan can deceive the children of Israel, the Apostle Peter, stop assuming you and I are immune. There are many men and women that are wiser, that knew better, that still did what they did. Which is why the Apostle John, back in chapter 2, verse 14, adds, in verse 14, Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Why include that phrase if it's not so important? Because that's what helps you overcome, believer. The Word helps you overcome. There is only ever victory if you are in the Word and the Word is in you. Stop thinking you will win without it. Believer, it's a guaranteed loss every time. Guaranteed. The fact that Jesus makes those statements in the Bible that we just don't pay attention to shows how ignorant we really are. When he makes a statement, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is telling you what the emphasis should be, and you and I are like, "Ah, I don't think that's that important. You'll always supposedly conquer one sin only to swap the idol you finally got sick of. Because let's be honest, we get sick of things sometimes. Only to go back to it later. You ever done that? Like, I've stopped doing this. And then you find yourself months later doing it again. It's a fight and you can't fight back if you don't have the sword. The sword of the spirit. And I'm going to make this statement. Prayer without the word of God is a foolish war strategy, believer. God, help me. I can't fight. You're right, you can't. You're not using this. Little children, in verse 13, is to bring that group that seems to be a call to maturity, but they needed further instruction from the Father because they're still immature. John is not trying to scold them, but rather encourage them to wake up and pay attention as parents tell their children from time to time. Do you do do that as a parent? Like, wait a second, pay attention, focus, buddy, come on. Told you, come on, look. You're not seeing this. Especially when your child is daydreaming. Have you ever done that? Like, spaced out, they're not even in tune. I'm here. What John's trying to do is like, wake up. He's not trying to scold them. He's trying to get them to see the seriousness. And God's trying to tell us the same thing. And many of us are like, I know, but you really don't. You're just like that child that needs to be reminded to wake up and pay attention and focus. Because you've been daydreaming spiritually. We've laid out spiritual challenges that are faced by the brethren. Now let's look at the serious contrast in our love for the things of God in the world. Number two, serious contrast. Verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. A major hindrance... To your spiritual walk with God, believer, simply put, is worldliness. Worldliness is the very thing that will cause the love for God to diminish. The prohibition do not love the world or the things in the world. He's not talking about the physical world, he's not saying, don't love the trees, don't love people, he's not talking about any of that. He's talking about the world system, which is under the dominion of Satan. The system controlled by Satan, the system that's antagonistic toward God. He moves from just the general, like, hey, Don't love the world, then he gives you the specifics of what he's talking about. You see, most Christians would state they don't care to support the powers of darkness. Most of us would be like, I don't want anything to do with what Satan's doing on this earth. But if you were to look closely at what our money and time goes into, we clearly see that we are supporting the very world system that we say we're against. We need to stop speaking generically and be more specific in our lives, guys. Where we love the world more than we love God. If your first response is, that's legalism, you're probably deeper in love with the world than you really are willing to admit. Don't make me give up stuff I love that really actually is opposition to God. That's legalism. No, it's not. Holiness is not legalism. Don't confuse the two. Many Christians brought up in legalistic homes swing to the other extreme, proclaiming Christian liberty while supporting sin. Believer, there are many in the church today that have been damaged by legalism growing up that now are on the other side of that fence and to the other extreme. They are denying the very things that are sinful in the word of God now. And they still throw around loosely the word legalism. It's like a cop-out for them. What does the text say? The love of the Father is not in him. The one that loves the world, the one that likes to participate with everyone else. God's love is not abiding in that person at that time. If a Christian is loving the world, he is not loving the Father. You cannot do both. Jesus is always calling us to either you're with me or you're against me. He's not going, try to put both feet in both paths, one on each. Love for God and love for the world cannot coexist, believer. In fact, James 4.4 says the the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Which is why those that are opposed to the brethren that call them out for their departure from the truth would rather be loved by the world than by God himself. You see, the truth is many prefer to be loved by the world in the church than they do to be loved by the Father. They just haven't been willing to admit that to themselves. Here he explains why we cannot love God and the world at the same time because of what the world is. The three. First one is lust lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is what drives us or moves us. It's the inner nature that makes demands of us. The problem is when these desires begin to drive us and order order us to become something that we ought not be, which we would call inordinate affections. These things can dominate our minds. Things like jealousy, envy, pride, anger, immoral thoughts, ambition, social status, knowledge, all of these things drive us away from the things of God. When you realize that this is going on in your life, there's one thing that so many don't realize. They can help it by starving the old man. It's not a losing strategy to do so, it's the right strategy. So many Christians try to get as much of the world as they can with some Bible and think that that's going to work. We need to stop with the excuses. Romans 6, 11 through 13 says this. Likewise, you also, speaking to believers, reckon yourselves to be deed in, dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The only way sin can reign is if you constantly feed its urges. It must be starved and time for spiritual things to become a priority. That is the only way to conquer that strong desire that you and I have to go in the wrong direction. Next one that we have listed here in 1 John is the lust of the eyes. The sinful things that our eyes ought not to see. Craving what we see comes out many times in covetousness. You see something that you want for yourself that someone else has. One of the greatest dangers is how many Christians think they can tough it out with what they expose themselves to in the world in the world of entertainment, music, and even reading. Many a believer could have read through the Bible multiple times throughout their lives, but the lust of the eyes got in the way. Our eyes want something else to look at than the Word of God. You don't need to watch it just because everyone else has, believer. It's not legalistic to want to please the Father in your priorities, either. Sometimes the best option is very simple, and most don't apply. Most of us don't apply the very simple solution. Stay away. Run. Or in today's culture, most things on the screen, turn it off. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Sometimes the best strategy with dealing with sin is to simply run away from its proximity. Here's the thing, believer, I don't know that you pay attention to this enough, and I don't either, but you know the areas you're most tempted in. If you've watched for any length of time your walk with God, you know where you stumble the most. And what brings you to that point? And sometimes the only solution is to avoid that. Avoid those people, avoid that avenue, avoid that location, or block the internet if you have to. If we only paid attention to our spiritual walk and how it's affected by what we let in through our eyes and ears, we really would see a big difference in our love for God. It not only affects our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with our spouse, our children, our coworkers, and even other church members. And I'm going to be very clear on one point that I want to be honest enough to share because I know it's happened with me. When you're struggling with something behind the scenes that nobody knows about and you lash out on somebody else as if they did that, that's wicked and wrong. And you do it and I do it without realizing it. Fathers, we have a tendency towards anger because someone else did us something that day sometimes. And it comes out on our kids when it shouldn't. We need to be very careful That we don't allow the things that come through these eyes to affect our relationship with others where they ought not to be. The last one he points out is the pride of life. This is arrogance. One who exaggerates by means of boasting. The pride of life has to do with the tendency to brag or boast in any exaggerated way about the things that you and I have. This is in contrast with the longevity of abiding with God. This is all temporary. The things that we're proud of on this earth are only temporary things. They don't last. So what that you got the new vehicle? Things are going to break down in a few years. As one pastor said it, your amazing electronic purchase is a yard sale for 10 cents. A few years down the road. The world is passing away and all its desires are lust. You and I know this and we still refuse to live in light of that. We know it's all going away, but do we live like that? No. I'm looking forward to eternity. Then why are you living for the present as much as you are? You see the truth is, church, the capacity to enjoy the worldly system also diminishes. Sin operates under the law of diminishing returns. You don't actually get a better investment. In fact, you keep losing. You keep losing over and over, and it gets worse. There are so many disciples of Jesus that have ruined their homes and churches simply because they refuse to acknowledge the sin in their own lives out of pride. Parents, I think our children see a lot more than we think they see in our lives. And when we tell them, hey, you need to own this, and we don't own it ourselves, what's a different thought in their mind of what is consistent? So many of us refuse to see how much hurt they've caused others by the way they've refused to see their own sin. What's even more heartbreaking is the pride some believers carry, acting as though they played no role part in the demise of those closest to them. Red flags should go off for all of us as believers when we think we're doing just fine. The worst thing that you and I can think is that we're doing just fine. When Paul the Apostle, throughout the books that he writes, the letters that he writes to the churches, keeps saying, I fight against the sin." Paul never thought that he was doing just fine. Your sinful patterns that you deny exist will spread to those around you if you're not careful, which is one of the reasons why what a church practices and preaches from the pulpit becomes the standard for that church body. He who does the will of God, this is where we should be. This is not a test of life. This is a person that's in fellowship with Christ already, but he needs to abide. does not mean that a Christian will automatically do the will of God, but when you and I live in this abiding state, we will. John speaks here in absolute language. He's speaking of the state of the believer. If the state of the believer is that of abiding fellowship, the fellowship will continue to eternity. And God wants that fellowship with us. The Heavenly Father does not care to scold His children over sin in their life. He wants them to be conformed to Christ. That's His ultimate aim. The sin problem was already dealt with by Christ. Telling a disciple of Christ not to love the world means that he has the capacity to get sucked back in, which is what we have. So in closing, where is your love divided, believer? Where is your love divided? Where do you find that you're divided in your love for God because you're not possibly sure at times that you're his? Maybe you doubt whether you really are in Christ because your actions don't match up. Assurance is an absolute essential point that we all must consider in our walk with God. It's very hard to fight out of defeat every day. Maybe we are fully opposed to God. Maybe you're watching this online and you're thinking, I don't care one bit about what's been revealed here. You're under the influence of the world. Maybe this Christianity just seems ridiculous to you. Can I plead with you that you need a savior? You need Christ. You need the gospel. You can't save yourself. Even if you were to say, God, I want you to weigh me by my good deeds compared to my bad deeds, your bad deeds would outrank it by a long shot. You don't even have a chance if that was a standard. Because everything that you and I do is a different currency. The standard and righteousness of Christ is a different currency than what we have as human beings. You need to place your faith in the finished work of Christ who died, was buried, and rose again the third day for your sin. Jesus did not only come, believer, to save us from sin's penalty, but from sin's dominion in our lives. You don't have to sin, believer. You're not obligated to give anything to sin. You don't need to give in to sin in your daily life. You have what is necessary to fight against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Believer, you have everything you need to fight against those things. God has not left us hanging. God didn't go, I rescued you, figure it out. Sometimes the best way to show loyalty to Christ is not what you're willing to do for him, which a lot of believers do a lot of stuff. In fact, a lot of people do it out of guilt, right? i got to do some good things so I feel better. But what you're willing to walk away from. And one of the things that struck me as I was working through this text is what Jesus tells the rich young ruler. Hey, have you done these things? Oh, yeah, I've done all of them. Kept them for my youth. I've done what the law required. And Jesus calls him to sell all that he has, give it to the poor, and then follow him. And Jesus is telling him what he told the disciples when he first called them, leave those things behind, follow me. Believer, you may be following Christ, but you still haven't left some things behind. You're still holding on to some things, or you came back to them. You said you left them behind, but you went back. You picked them back up. The sinful habits that are destroying your walk with God. And they're hurting people around you. So many of us simply do not avoid the obvious, do only to avoid the obvious in what we ought to let go or avoid doing. Some of us can realize we have a problem, right? But we don't do anything about it. I know I need to love God more. Why aren't you? What's stopping you? Is it your own pride? You can't pay God back for sin you keep refusing to turn away from by doing something else. Stop trying. Get back in the word and pray to be vigilant and aware of your spiritual deficiencies, believer. Seek help from others around you to strengthen you. Don't do it yourself. Believer, if you're struggling, you're going, listen, I don't know how to do this. Come talk to me. Come talk to another leader in this church. I promise you we want to help. We're not here to condemn you and judge you. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. We're not going to condemn that part. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you just let sin continue to fester in your life, it'll keep destroying you and the people around you. It will keep decimating you. In closing, let's read James 4, 1 through 10. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. yet You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's what we ought to do. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up.